0: world of work podcast with james
1: and jane hi everyone this is jane and just before we get into this episode i want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io over there you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do as well as our team development programs you'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work so that's www.worldofwork.io now let's get on to the episode
0: Hello, this is James.
1: And this is Jane.
0: And here we are again with another episode of a World of Work podcast. We've got a guest today. Jane, who are you speaking to and what are we speaking about?
1: So today we have the wonderful guest, Dr. Sam Evans. And uh, Sam has recently completed her uh, PhD and she's been looking uh, at issues of class in uh, museum work in the UK.
0: That's a fascinating subject. I'm really looking forward to it. I think class is a really important conversation that we don't often engage in in the workplace. So I'm really interested to see what we learn. Let's get into the conversation. Okay, so welcome to the main part of today's podcast. And we've got a really exciting conversation lined up today. We're going to be speaking to Dr. Sam Evans, and we're going to be exploring the role that class plays to some extent in our careers and our workplace. Um, But before we get into that, Sam, would you be able to say a few words about yourself, maybe about your background and the things that you're working on at the minute?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, hello, everyone. My name's Sam Evans. I've just completed a, um, my PhD at Birkbeck, the Department of Organisational Psychology. As James said, I was looking at class and careers within museum work. Um, I actually did my PhD full time, and I've been um, teaching at Birkbeck as well. Um, but it was a bit of a careers change, so. Um, I did do an MSc in occupational psychology at Birkbeck. Um, but prior to that, I was working within um, sort of charity and art sector okay. for quite a long time. And I did work in museums, so I do have that sort of um, connection to that field. Worked in marketing and management for, for a long time. And a lot of my, what I was sort of doing really sort of ended up being more around organizational change. And that's where I became interested in organizational psychology. Um, Great. And yeah, so so there's a sort of journey there towards organization, organizational psychology, which is um, where
0: I am now. Excellent. Well, we really like the sort of career changers. I'm a career changer. Mm-hmm. My, my background, as people know, is I was actually a chartered accountant. That's how I started. And I sort oh. of transitioned out of that. And Jane's background is, is very much in the, um, the third sector as well. So, so that's really interesting. Um, so as I said in the beginning, we're going to be speaking a little bit about the role that class plays in careers and workplace, and particularly in, in your uh, research in, in the mm-hmm. world of museums. But if we start at the beginning, I'm going to check out one of these, you know, hardly open questions and and just see see where you want to go with it. We're talking about class today, and and I guess if if we're starting that conversation about class, if we think about class, I guess for a lay audience, what are we really what do we mean by class, and and what are what are some of the things that that people think about when they think about class?
2: Um, it seems like quite a straightforward question, um, but it's quite complex, and actually when we think about class, it's it's something that um, academics have been debating for over 150 years. And when I say academics, that's mainly sort of sociologists. So actually within the sort of organisational field, um, it's not really being looked at at all. There's different ways of looking at class. And I mean, a lot of schools, scholars would probably argue that there's no one right way of looking at class. So i just give you a sort of brief overview. There's the there's sort of understanding of class as basic economic inequality, and so you can understand that as a, you know, how someone might be positioned in the labour market. Um, you know, the very sort of founding father of class was Karl Marx, Max Weber, and this idea of having labour market value. Um, so it's mm-hmm. about how much economic power you have, that sort of thinking has informed what we would use or what some people would use or the government certainly uses. Um, it's the um, NSSEC, which is a way of classifying occupations um, according, yeah. according to the sort of um, skill required, the size of organisation and the sort of power you have within that organisation, whether you're self-employed like yourselves or you know, whether you, or, you know, own your own company or whether you're sort of somewhere within a hierarchy. So there's that sort of approach, which is economic. But then there's also another approach, which is um, that it's more culturally ascribed. So it it sort of depends on your geography, your community. And actually, there's there's a whole lot of work around how, you know, there's no such thing. Even if we talk about like working class, there's no one sort of monolithic idea of what working class is. And so people talk about class as a sort of subjective identity. There's a sort of disconnect between how people understand their own class and how academics might try and define class, and so this has led to this interest in in trying to understand a bit more about how people talk about class in the everyday and what, what does that actually mean. So there's a lot of complexity to that in terms of how I understood class, and I did, I wanted to take quite an inductive um, view of class, and this was partly because um, what's tended to happen is there's been a, a sort of decoupling of what we might think of as class or how class is talked about and how class inequality is talked about. So there's been a sort of a discourse. I mean, a lot of people attribute this to neoliberal going back to Mm -hmm. the time of Thatcher and Reagan, that that there's no such thing as class, that um, it's all about this sort of hardworking, enterprising individual who can get on come what may. And so this sort of led to this idea that, that class is no longer an important category. And Researchers have have actually found that while there's been this sort of confusion around class um, and this idea that class doesn't matter, at the same time, things like economic inequality, precariousness at work, declining social mobility have all taken place. So this is sort of separation between what you might call class inequality and what you might call class. That's sort of where my research sort of entered, if you like. I wanted to look at how people talk about class and how a particular field of work might actually be construct you know
0: classed in itself that's a really really helpful framing and a contextualization of of what we're focusing on today and we are recording this in uh january 2021 and a lot of the things that you speak about there feel like they're very much of this time or of Mm -hmm. the past decade And, and obviously you know class has been um uh topical issue throughout a lot of modern history. But but at the moment, it, it feels really quite zeitgeisty in some ways with um, some of the things that we've seen. Um, when when we look at what specifically you're focusing on, you're mm-hmm. looking really at the role of class or social class in, in museum work. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, you explained a little bit about your background being in the, the sort of museum sector. W- what specifically is it about that sector and the role of class in that domain if you will that's interesting to you I mean it it intuitively seems like it's an interesting place for me but but what makes it stand out for you as an interesting area to explore class in the workplace
2: yeah no it's it's a good question I mean it, it yes there is a sort of personal connection but um there were lots of places I was interested in looking at this um there's been this whole sort of research focus on um the cultural sector the cultural and creative industries not just in the UK, across across um, the West, and this idea that actually they could be very meritocratic. So there was this sort of research surge, if you like, this interest that actually, okay, anyone can be creative, so anyone can work in, in these sorts of sectors. So therefore, these are good places to to sort of encourage social mobility. But this has sort of been largely being debunked, because actually, to get on in a lot of cultural sectors, you need to be able to sort of deal with the precariousness of the work. So you need some sort of of backing. But museums within all of that have been overlooked. Um, And obviously, I, I, having worked in them, I sort of knew that there'd been lots of conversations about um, issues of, I mean, when I was there, the discourse was around social inclusion, exclusion exclusion it was that sort of that was very new labour sort of um discourse but um there had been very little talk about class and it just felt like it was sort of you know sort of very overlooked in the sector and yet I was pretty sure I'd bumped up against it I had that sort of intuition and you know for my research I actually look at how museums in the UK have developed um, and it's quite interesting in that they have they've have quite a sort of public sector focus within this country. I mean, it's different in different countries. A lot of the sort of bigger museums, national museums have there's an argument that they've had this almost sort of um, they emerged in Victorian times and this sort of educational, almost sort of disciplinary, disciplinary role in terms of sort of classing the working class, <laughs> you know, disciplining them and and um so there's this, this sort of great book by um, Tony Bennett, the, the Birth of the Museum, which talks about, you know, how within the sort of uh, museum space, you'd have people in their sort of Sunday best walking around in, in mm. very hushed tones. And, um, yes. So there, there, there is this sort of debate around, you know, are museums actually producing this sort of very dominant cultural capital? And um, at the same time, that sort of tends to sort of distinguish the middle. So there's a lot of constantly sort of measuring the audience profile of people who visited museums and it never shifted. It was always quite middle class, if you like, or or people at least who had a a sort of education. So it was quite interesting because obviously there's there's, um, museums are sort of implicated in class um and also you know they do the job of actually constructing our histories and our identities so it's quite important to understand who can do that work on our behalf so um for those reasons it just turned out to be a very interesting sector
0: it sounds it sounds like a it sounds like a brilliant sector and and some of the things that you spoke about there resonate to some extent with my uh lived experience of people who've worked in this domain so when you spoke about the need for the security to let you deal with the precarious nature of, of um, particularly when you spoke about the art space earlier, that yeah. connected with me. And when we get into things like the museum space, you know, I, I do know somebody who's done their master's in curation at, um, at one of the UK universities. And, and that's, that feels like a very niche thing. And it feels like mm. there are probably certain aspects of um, class or at least social capital and certain things mm. that, that are imbued in yeah. the way one develops in society that that shape opportunities and things in there. So I think that's really interesting. And I I really liked one of your last points there where you you spoke about what the roles of museums are um, to some extent and and what it feels like going in. So are they sort of a disciplinarians or do they reinforce? And and one of the things that popped into my mind is that, you know, the emotional responses that people have going into museums are are going to be fundamentally hugely different based on how comfortable and accepted and validated they feel within those spaces. So to some extent they are these kind of monuments defining what we value or, or where we choose to invest in yeah. to some extent as a society and, and what we value. So that's, a, it's just a fascinating. It's aspect. quite
2: interesting because there's, I mean, there's been a lot of, there, there is a whole sort of field of research around museum studies and, and museology, but it tends to focus on that, the people who visit museums or the collections, there's very little research on museums as a place to work. Um, and I, I was interested in sort of understanding, um, you know, class at this very sort of, um, not just understanding it as, as a as a person has a class and then they go into a sector and how do they get on, but understanding how the um, mm. sector shapes class and contributes to it because, you know, organisations are implicated mm. in class processes um, and that's really not been examined very much. There's um, work by... Um, she's a sociologist, Joan Acker, who looks at um, organisations as sort of regimes of inequality. And there's been a lot of look at gender and race, but not, yeah. not so much at how they contribute to class processes. So that was my interest, was looking at how museums themselves as a place, as a field to work in, how were they classed as a context and how does that then class people? Um, mm-hmm. And so how and how do people within all of that understand what might be um, sort of class inequality if you like so so what that because you know there's there's a sort of difference between understanding you know you you have a socially stratified society or you or so, sort of differentiated I mean you can't really get away from that um, you know and a lot mm. of class analysts will say you know it's it's quite difficult to tackle it's a very hard topic to tackle inequality you're always going to have differences but what you really need to understand yeah. is the sort of um, the processes by which things are unfair. So is it really a level playing field? Is it really meritocratic? Um, and so that those are the sorts of things I was looking at. And um so my my sort of whole approach to my PhD was very inductive, very um sort of critical, really, taking that step back um, and just sort of understanding how do people who work in museums understand their field what's important to them what's valued why do they work in it like you said um you know doing this sort of postgrad and curatorial work it's a very hard decision i think to sort of invest in quite a small field yeah. and that's definitely what came out in the sort of findings that you know the more the more specialist you are is the the more sort of valued the work you know there's a sort of hierarchy based on this sort of like being very very specialist to the sector um and yet that limits your career and it's also very difficult to achieve right
0: i think jane's going to jump in with some questions about your research specifically in in a minute and and maybe some of the lessons sort of there uh i guess you focused uh mainly on on the you know that domain in, in the museums world do you do you think though that this is a field that has broader applications do you do you think that our relationship with class applies across a range of of sectors and industries
2: oh definitely absolutely and um there's a sort of body of research now that's growing that's looking at <clears throat> class in particular sectors so I've um th- th- there's this this, co- there's this concept actually called the class ceiling which um Friedman and Laurison have actually um researched which shows that um you know for people from a working class background trying to get into what they call elite occupations and then they research architecture acting tv um <clears throat> and accountancy um they show how you know, people from from, um, sort of lower... I mean, they have a particular way of measuring class, but people from those backgrounds will not get into the most prestigious type of work, like TV commissioning. They might get into, like, marketing TV rather than commissioning TV. Um, And there's very sort of subtle processes as as to why. So it's definitely not just museums. You know, it sort of intuitively makes sense that, that, you know, class, the idea of class came from the world of work so it, it, and it and it's so sort of embedded within how work is organized um that I think you know every organization um is is sort of in a way contributing to class processes right I think that um you, you can't sort of get away from it really so yes it's my answer to that I think it definitely is relevant um sort of beyond museums it's relevant to, to um, any workplace it's
1: it's so interesting you talk about it's clear that you have a very close relationship mm. with the sector in terms of understanding it Um, And I just I just wondered how uh, my understanding Mm -hmm. is the sector is relatively small, similar to some of the other sectors we've we've spoken to people about before and my own sector in sport. And I just wondered, um, was there an awareness of the project in the sector? Did you get a sense of what the reception was from the sector or whether indeed there was like a a homogenous uh, uh, reception or whether it was different depending on. What parts of the sector you spoke to?
2: It's a good question. And, and I think because I uh, approached it at that sort of field level, rather than going into a particular organisation where you've got lots of, um, I think, more... There's more difficulty in people talking about some of these things, but people were talking outside of their organisation. When I approached I approached organisations to begin with, that, um, like trade unions, that, um, professional bodies that were representing the whole sector... Um, and um, at that level it was that was sort of right at the beginning of the research and it was just quite interesting because people um, then were oh you know yes we don't really know what class is we don't know how to measure it we don't know where well, there's no initiatives in the sector to, to sort of tackle it um, but they were very willing to help um, and so when it came to sort of going out and doing all my I did focus groups and I did interviews I could use those sort of channels to actually communicate with with the whole sector, and I was quite surprised at the response. Actually, I was really slightly overwhelmed um, that everybody suddenly this was their opportunity to talk about class, and um, that there was a huge interest in it. Um, and that in itself, I've actually used that in my PhD because a lot of people said to me, um, "Oh, you've got focus groups in London. We should have them up in the, you know, in the north. You know, this is about class. We need to have a voice." And in that way, then they're, they're sort of they're constructing a version of class as sort of geography, if you like. And um, there was a lot of um, um, places that wanted to, um, you know, they wanted to have it in their particular museum, um, and a lot of people who wanted to take part didn't want to take part in. in focus groups they could take part in interviews I, I i had I definitely had more data than I could actually deal with um I think the 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 interest because they'd never really spoken about it and like you say it is quite a discreet sector um and it's that people are what I was quite interesting was how they're quite networked and um you know since i'd I had worked in the sector in the past but um I hadn't really been like social media was really important to it but the other the the sort of other side of that was I what I found was a lot of people who said yes yes you know I'm from a working class background and I'm trying to develop a career in museums and I'm finding it really hard because you know it's very difficult to get these very prestigious jobs you need these um it's like a sort of bank of mum and dad you know you need you need to be able to everyone talked about having to volunteer and having to Um, work for free or work for for, you know um, with very low pay to do expensive qualifications Um, people talked about um, you know the issues of um, accent as well that actually that that, you know they they were made to feel that they they weren't as intelligent as some people so they're very definite examples of what you could call classism Um, and people were very willing to talk about this within focus groups and, and so on But all the people that were in those sorts of jobs, um, and I asked people, you know, who took part to actually um, sort of reconstruct a hierarchy of museum work. So all those jobs like front of house, security, um, cleaning, um, retail, all those sorts of jobs were considered quite low status. And people from those those areas didn't really take part in the research. And this wasn't for a once of trying. You know, I really... I was having conversations, I remember, with one museum to sort of try and have a very specific focus group with them for their sort of whole um, front-of-house department. Um, so there's a whole sort of group of people that just sort of self-excluded, um, which I found quite interesting as well. That um, you know, I was very careful not to ta- use the word career, to use the word museum work, because there's, there's a sort of class dimension to the word, the discourse of career in itself. And... Um, So, so yes, there was, there was a lot of interest, um, and, but, but only from certain sorts of groups. So, um, I think that was quite interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, one of the things we talk, we've talked about before is where you've got a sector that is quite, uh, like you say, Mm -hmm. discreet, but also has, I, I I hesitate to use this phrase, but in, Mm -hmm. in simplest terms, it's got a bit Mm -hmm. of a cult following. So there are people that really want to work in it. Um, then the people who work in in roles that maybe aren't specific to that sector so front of house obviously is important to museum but exists in other sectors as well um one of the things we sometimes talk about is whether they identify as being part of that sector or part of just the hospitality sector or part of the uh, administ- business administration sector because i think um I think it's interesting who even who sees themselves as in those sectors or not in those sectors by coincidence or by deliberateness
2: absolutely um, yeah yeah no, I think that's a very insightful point because that that's it, it, exactly it's like their sort of their own identity isn't it is how much is that sort of connected to their field of work yeah definitely
1: yeah, and we, we i mean james James and I quite often talk about um like to talk about sort of issues around identity because we think it's a really interesting. And often unexplored by people who would find it a really useful way of thinking about their own experiences of work. Mm. I, I just wanted to ask you. Um, uh, I was having a look at the um, a version, a original version of your sort of website when you were first talking about your research early doors, mm. and you mentioned the uh, the notions of of economic and of symbolic capital. Now, mm. at the very beginning, you sort of mentioned why you were interested and how you got involved. And I just wanted could you explain a little bit more about what, what you mean by economic and uh symbolic capital and how they relate to your research
2: yeah sure um well I use the the theory of um Pierre Bourdieu and um he um developed this idea of um the, this sort of trilogy this conceptual trilogy between a field which you can consider like a sort of sector um and if you use the met- his metaphor of the game is actually really quite useful so Um, if you think of a field, say, like museum work as the the sort of uh, the map of the game, the the sort of um, um, then capital is the sort of what you need to actually be able to play it. Um, And there are actually um, sort of there's four types of capital. But what what I was interested in drawing out at that point was a relationship between economic and symbolic capital. So economic capital is sort of what you would think it would be in terms of, um, you know, um, wealth and income and those sorts of things. And I was looking at how, um, one, you need that to be able to get on within a museum career. Um, As I mentioned, you know, needing to actually pay for qualifications, needing to be able to work for free. Um, And then at the end of it, you don't actually earn very much anyway. Um, But that has a sort of almost inverse relationship with what um, this idea of symbolic capital, um, which for want of a better word, you could call it status, but it's like basically what is particularly valued within that sector, within the field of museum work that might not be recognised outside. So it's almost like you were saying, it's like people who really want to work in there, um, what what is it about museum work? You know, why why do they why do they really value it? And what's what's the most prestigious thing? What's really sort of um, the sort of the, the height of status within museum work? And um, I asked um, people in focus groups and also in their their interviews to sort of talk about this, and um, um, it was a, a lot of people. Um, you know, they want to either they think about it becoming a curator. It's the curatorial work. It's the um, having a sort of very specialist role. So you can have general cur- curators, you can have very specialist curators, and then you can have like working at a national museum and the prestige of working at a national museum. That was a sort of ultimate of like um, symbolic capital. And in I actually look at how <clears throat> um, it, it's a bit more. So I look at the sort of the, the, the way in which, um, you know, people in the field try and keep museums special because actually you know although there is this sort of um um you know having very specialist knowledge is is um sort of revered that doesn't pay for museums you know they need money from somewhere and actually you know a lot of museum collections are based on money they're based on wealth and i sort of draw that 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 it's almost like it's what it's what what Bourdieu would call misrecognition that actually to to really be able to get on is seen as this sort of um, you know you are very specialist and knowledgeable but actually you are supported by um, you know a whole wealth of capital that perhaps other people don't have so it's it's almost um, and and you can see that within institutions and with individuals if you like I call it for, for the institutions I call it collections meritocracy this idea that some collections are, are so prestigious and amazing that um you know of course they they warrant government funding and they should be in all the national museums all the national museums you know they do actually come from um having considerable amount of economic power in the first place but that's all sort of that's all sort of distanced there's all this sort of um these these sort of quite complex processes by which you know what basically what is seen as a seen as sort of it's sort of natural a natural neutral thing this sort of symbolic capital but it isn't and that's Bourdieu's argument is actually it's, it's it comes from um what he would call social arbitrary you know it comes from this it, it's um um <clears throat> basically underpinned by power and money <laughs>
1: um it's so, so it's I, I'm really interested in this and one of the reasons is that I'm, I'm thinking back to both a podcast we did with uh, a friend of the show uh, Laura Hamilton around volunteering and also to yeah. my own work on boards and trustees and governance. And mm. I keep thinking about these money can't buy roles. And when you have significant economic capital, if you described it, the roles mm. that people want are the ones that you can't get. It's not that they are rare and they mm. are they are few and far between. And they also um, require a very niche expertise. And so we yeah. see that a lot in sport and we see it, I mean, there's, 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 there's so, so much of what you're saying rings true mm-hmm. with things like one of the challenges about diversity on boards, for example, uh, particularly in the nonprofit sector, is that you kind of need really secure employment and money to be able to negotiate with your employer to take six afternoons off a year to be able to help with a, a, a significant organization. Mm-hmm. And, um, but how that relates to those, that symbolic capital that you gain, but you kind of sometimes you need to springboard off one or the other to get to that, um,
2: yeah.
1: and that makes that makes total sense.
2: Yeah, I think well that, that yeah. I mean, I'm interested in what you're doing as well. It's it, it's it, and I and I think it's a sort of common pattern, and it, and in a way, it's just actually. I, I think it's for sectors to start being a little bit more honest <laughs> about. The, the ways in which certain people can get on and others can't, that it's, it, it's, it's. Um, I, I mean, Borgia called these sort of invisible processes, and that's why I use a sort of critical, discursive approach to actually try and, un, you know, unpick them, really. So I was looking at how this sort of game is is structured, and so the symbolic capital there is, you know, the idea would be working for a, as a specialist curator in a national museum and then perhaps becoming a director. In terms of the rules of the game, like how to play the game, um there is this need for on the one hand it's economic capital to sort of be able to get that distinct you know that distinction but at the same time um increasingly within museums and i i I haven't looked at this in other sectors but i'd be interested in in doing so is this what i call a market for recognition and so whilst museums sort of um resist this idea that they're about money and profit they are about trying to get profile and actually you know some you know national, some national museums are sort of like almost um superstar status there's a, there's a paper that looks at that um and so that then actually also shapes people's careers so those people who um can develop their profile whether it's on you know going to conferences social media whether they can increasingly you know you've got history on tv this sort of um the, um the, the idea that the National Museum Director now is somebody who can actually have that um that not just distinguishing capital or you know that sort of knowledge but it's also this ability to gain the recognition and the profile and and that is a process i think
0: I was just going to say one of the, one of the you know battles that I hear people talking about now is for you know a battle for attention. Right and and yeah. the ability to attract and and maintain attention is a hugely powerful thing and in some ways we can think about as another form of of capital that that exists in in different ways mm-hmm. and and that's um, probably inextricably linked to a lot of the other factors that we're talking about is that fair do you think
2: yeah and and I, I think um, um, I actually. I mean, I could see these patterns in the research, but I, I actually got the idea of the recognition economy. I nicked that from a journalist who was, I can't remember their name, but they were talking very much about that, the attention economy. And I suppose yeah. that that's a sort of more um, day-to-day granular thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, when when you get lost in social media and what you're actually looking at. But but I think it, it is it's it so while I was trying to look at something a bit more, um, it's not just about attention, it is about getting that status, because if you get the recognition, then that boosts your symbolic battle and yeah. the rest of it. So it's all sort of connected.
0: So so I've got a question. You know, some people suggest that class maybe isn't as much of an issue as it used to be in, in our careers, in our workplace. Um and and you've obviously looked in one specific area. I guess if we if we were to sort of hypothesise or broaden the conversation out a, a little bit more, do you think class plays a large role still in, in the you know the careers or work I should say, given our conversation you know mm-hmm. the, the, the work that people do and their ability to progress in their work? I mean, yeah. how important of a factor do you think it is at the minute, more broadly?
2: Um, yeah, I think that's a good question. I think obviously there is this sort of issue that I touched on at the beginning, which is this idea that perhaps people don't it might not be in the forefront of their own minds when they're thinking about their own um, career paths. Um, um, I I think it is um, um, relevant if you think about it from the point of view of um, rather than a category, um, but more sort of how particular ways of having and being, if you like, are valued within particular sectors and those are more difficult to achieve for certain people, then – then yes, I think it is, and you know I could think about my own um, experience, and I you know ask this, um, you know how would I? Because obviously a lot of people think the problem of class is being working class, um, but there's there's a real difficulty in defining what that is, um, and I I and I ask people this, you know how how would they know their own class, and how would they know the class of others, and it's quite people are quite confused by it um and i think this is because the whole uh, sort of landscape of class has been sort of muddied by um it's 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 it's, a, it's not an apolitical concept it's quite political it's not neutral yeah. you know when we're talking about yeah. class we're talking about a way of seeing society and how it's structured um and what's mm-hmm. fair and what isn't so um <clears throat> And personally, I think that's why it probably hasn't been looked at in organisation studies, because I think organisations, to be honest, are complicit in in how class is constructed. You know, they construct hierarchies and they allocate rewards, you know, economic or something.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and everybody who works in an organisation is at some level engaged within the society that they live in more broadly and in their organisation. Yeah. So they've got some interests and, and desires and games to play yeah. and you know, all that stuff though. So it's kind of that perpetuating thing which is yeah. which is difficult. Um, some of the some of the other ways that, you know, individual differences and in characteristics uh, manifest are protected in the UK. Mm-hmm. So we talk about things like gender and race mm-hmm. and disability and um, sexual orientation and things like that. So so those are kind of legally protected and there's certain rules around that. Now, do you think that class could ever fall into that type of category? Do you think it, it matters that it's not a protected characteristic? Is it something that could be mm-hmm. protected?
2: Yeah, I mean, because there's a lot of other researchers now looking at class and there's a the Social Mobility Commission and I and I'm pretty sure that they would be looking at some of these things. Um it just comes back to that how how would you then um define what you mean by class? And I think a lot of the the, the discussion would be around um <clears throat> this idea of social mobility. I mean I I, I do criticise that in my PhD because not everybody can be socially mobile. Um, So my um, way of thinking about it is rather than just saying everyone can get to those sort of very desired positions, is actually try and change how we think of different types of work. You know, why is certain work valued more than others? Or at least be honest about those processes, sort of bring them out into the open. Um, So in terms of um, whether it could be a legally protected characteristic, if it was, then obviously it would get a lot more attention along the lines of, you know, what gets measured matters. and i mean I went to a um i was on a <clears throat> attended this sort of um refreshing diversity and inclusivity um event yesterday in the age of the pandemic and they were talking about race and they were talking about gender, but they didn't talk about class, but all of these things were class you know there there's um you know race and a lot of the issues around um um the the pandemic and how um you know certain people are frontline and in frontline jobs is to do with sort of economic inequality so there's lots of intersecting things there and i think class is almost sort of like a sort of a master discourse if you like that actually shapes all of these it's, it's sort of understanding how things are valued within particular work context context but within broader society as well so um um, I think it should be I think it's problematic because um, partly because it's quite difficult to define but also because um, it does have that political overtone but I'm sure I and I haven't personally haven't actually been looking at that um, but um, I'm I'm pretty sure that that people are on the case so um, my short answer to that is yes I think it should be
1: yeah it's interesting I you, you when you talk about it as like a master taxonomy or a master sort of index I mm. It's quite often the way that I in my sort of very naive head think about class, it's this it's this sort of labelling and indexation for the purposes of positioning people to have access. So my logical yeah. my logic for that is well if people are using it to do that, then of course it should be protected. But I understand it is far more complicated <laughs> than that. Um yeah. I just want to ask you one last question for me because I know we are uh, running short of time, but from the research that you did uh, and the conducting the research as you did, what what lessons or suggestions should, would you have to organisations mm. that want to start? You, um, you said in your section mm. there was a huge appetite that you initially saw in certain places. How mm. would you encourage organisations to sort of at the very beginning start examining the issue with their, with their staff?
2: Yes. I mean, I, I guess when you say organisations, it sort of depends on who does it because in a way um it was easy for people to take part in my research because i was sort of like an outsider and sometimes you find that that it's easier for people to actually have those conversations when they they're, they're not sort of um stuck within some hierarchy you know you don't want to see, be seen to be sort of critical of your organization but i think um it, it's encouraging alongside other issues like um you know we've, we've touched on the sort of race and gender and all the rest of it is Um, Just include class um, and start asking people to um, talk about their own journey so far. I mean, that's one thing that I um, uh, talk about in my PhD is that actually, you know, when people describe their own career journey, then class comes, it really comes to light and it comes to life. You know, you can sort of see where the, the challenge has been for them from where they've started to where they are now. Um, and I think that actually then highlights some of these things that perhaps other people don't see. So it's it, it's important to start having those conversations. Um, it's quite difficult to know where to take it. If you're a small organisation and you don't have the resources, then um, I, I think there needs to be more support at um, sort of a sector level. So, I mean, a lot of the work I've done is at that level, like with professional associations, with membership bodies, with trade unions. Um, and that's probably where it sits more comfortably, because then you can actually start really taking a look at the whole sector to think, OK, what 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 opportunities really are here and what what do people have to do to get them? And is that fair? Are we really, really encouraging the best people? That's I mean, that's another sort of side of it is that actually, you know, if you're just encouraging people who have got a certain sort of education and have got the money to get on, um, you know, are 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 you just creating this sort of homogenous way of thinking? Um, it's probably there there is definitely some benefit to sort of try and encourage um people who come have had a different journey into your sector. Um and I'm one thing I'm I want to do is work with the museum sector, but beyond because I've had, I've done some other research with um sort of outside of my PhD with the NHS and with um theatre directing, different career paths, but there's still similar issues um and very few people are talking about it so i think just talking about it thinking about the sort of career giving people the chance to think talk about their career paths um but also think about what what the expectations are and how those might actually then not actually be as fair as you think they are i mean just a small example somebody um they were talking about they'd gone for an interview for a job at a national museum and <clears throat> um and they were asked in the interview um you know if they'd visit you know they'd there was an assumption that they would have visited the National Museum and looked around and be very familiar with their exhibitions. And this person said they didn't have the money for the train fare to travel from where they were to actually go and just have a look at the museum. So you just don't even really think about those things because, um, you know, a lot of people are, um, you know, from a different class background. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously that's sort of stuck in my mind because I think that,
0: yeah, that's a great story, yeah. isn't it? It's it's a really bringing to life our assumptions mm. and expectations of yeah. others. We are um, in the process of of running out of time. I guess if we could ask you one one question, which is, if there was one thing that you'd like somebody who was maybe managing a team, you know, somebody who's out there managing a small team, to take away from this conversation, what what would your key message to them be?
2: Well, just be aware that um, that that class is an issue, and that actually. If you are able to sort of understand the, the journey that somebody's taken, is it's don't think about it just as all down to the individual. But actually that actually, there are some very definite um, sort of structural and historic disadvantages um, that, that shape people's journey. And I think you could almost turn it on, on its head and think the people that have had the most difficult beginning are probably the most resilient. And we talk about resilience, you know, this yeah. whole discourse of resilience, but actually, mm-hmm. we don't really value the people who probably are the most resilient. So. Um, I think it's just actually the the takeaway really is just knowing that it is an issue um, and, you know, it's time really that we do start talking about it.
0: Well, that sounds like a great message in terms of opening up the conversation and developing awareness. Um, unfortunately, that is us out of time. So just as a, as a very last question, how could people learn more about you and the work that you're working on?
2: I do have a sort of WordPress site, but which I use for my research, but I need to update it. So the best thing really is for people to follow me on Twitter. So my Twitter is um, Sam is at work. And
0: Sam is yeah. at work. Cool. So at Sam is at, at Sam work. Sam
2: is at work. Yeah. So you can find me on that. It's got a link to my a wordpress site on that and i'll actually um be updating that so that's probably the easiest way to follow my work yeah
0: brilliant okay well it's just time for me to say thank you that was a really interesting and informative conversation so thank you very much from me
2: yeah and a massive thank you from me too well thank you both for asking me to talk about it. it's been great actually i love it <laughs> thank you so much
0: Okay, so that was our conversation with Sam, and you are back in the room with us. We've been speaking about the role that class plays, particularly within work in the museum space and museums more broadly. Um, but I think it surfaces a lot of other questions and reflections. Jane, is there anything that you'd like to touch on based on that conversation?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic, and it's as you know, James, it's something I feel quite passionately about about yeah. how how we start to improve social mobility and how we start to break down how people are perceived based on what their heritage, background, et cetera is, whatever that might be and in, in whatever characteristic that might be. So I think that's really interesting. I think there's a couple of things that strike me. One is I really, one of the reasons I'm really interested by Sam's work is her choice of industry and sector, as you probably guessed from my questions. And I think, yes. I think museums, I mean, we, we talked about this earlier, didn't we? And we used the words like laden and loaded with meaning. I feel yeah. like certainly growing up in, in 1980s and 1990s Britain, um, museums, and for those of you who don't know, museums uh, went through a massive period in the UK where they became free at the point of entry, and they were previously not. And it was it was built on an idea of sort of democratization of, of of museum entry and stuff like that. And it's not they're not all free anymore. There's lots of different strats of payment and stuff, but it was a quite a big deal back then. And I feel like part of that is because museums were considered to be in some way exclusive. And therefore, that really, really gets me thinking about the idea she introduced about social capital, how it relates to economic capital. And I'm kind of so stuck in that at the moment, thinking about it, because I feel like if I'd had the phrase social capital 20 years ago, I would have much more easily been able to pinpoint why people's experience of university, for example, was different amongst my peers. Because it feels like a very helpful concept of being able to sort of navigate that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I think there's some great reflections in there. Um, like you said, it's a really interesting industry, and and really relevant for this type of conversation. And I too kind of anchor back to that point around social capital. And and I guess the 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 things that we acquire through our social relationships over our lives, the things that we learn, the things that we don't even know that we know, um, and the impact that those have on us in the workplace, and of course more more broadly. Um, and I, something that's just come back to me, or, or sort of surfaced for me, is we think about this is i guess to some extent the role that our education plays in this and and the fact that a lot of these things are um developed through education and and all too often i think a lot of education stops when we leave our formal education but i think a lot of these things are are types of things that we can continue to explore and bring into conversations in the workplace so that we can broaden our understandings of each other um and our backgrounds And, and i think that understanding gives us um better insights and better abilities to connect in a more inclusive way within our organizations. I think, as, as you were speaking about, Jane, as well, you started to allude to a few things but I think connect to some of the conversations that we've had about power. Um, and I think that's just an interesting thing to bear in mind. I know we'll be coming back and having more conversations about power, but I think there's an interesting overlap with that subject as well. Um, okay, well, that was our conversation, the first conversation we've had about class. We might have another at some point. We shall see. Um, so it's just time for us to say goodbye. So it is goodbye for me. And it's a uh, goodbye from me too. Hi, everyone. This is James. Uh, thank you very much for listening to that podcast. And please do share it and review it if you enjoyed it. And don't forget, you can learn more about our coaching, workshops, courses, and development programs on our website. That's www.worldofwork.io. Again, www.worldofwork.io.